2: From Allsport.com and Allsport Magazine, I'm Kevin Turner and this is the Allsport Podcast. It's Tuesday 23rd of March and as the teams assemble in Bahrain, the countdown to the 2021 season is now being measured in hours rather than days and weeks. While much has been carried over from 2020, there are still plenty of unknowns and one of those is how Aston Martin will go this year. They recently unveiled their new branding, Livery, and a four-time world champion driver in Sebastian Vettel at a glitzy launch event. The major talking points for today's podcast are, with Vettel coming into the team to replace Sergio Perez, can he get podiums this year? Can he resurrect his career and win a race? We also look at the car and ask if Aston Martin has what it takes to beat the other midfield teams to finish third in the Constructors' Championship this year. And if Lawrence Stroll is serious about his goal to be a championship contender, how will the team get there? I'm Allsports Chief Editor, and I'm joined by Allsports F1 reporter Luke Smith, alongside Allsports Grand Prix Editor Alex Kalinokas. Alex takes the lead on today's podcast. First, a look at the history of the team and how they rebranded to bring the Aston Martin name back to the F1 grid.
1: Kev, I thought I'd come to you first because uh, Luke uh, is uh, Luke gets all the glory anyway because of the magnificent uh, cover feature that he's produced. And may I say, I think the, uh, the the design on the cover is is particularly spectacular, thanks to the uh, the lovely colour scheme on the Aston that we'll no doubt come on to discuss. Uh, but Kev, I'll come to you first uh, with all that in mind. And um, just I was wondered if you could uh, talk us through Aston's F one history. It's not it's not very long, but it is a long time ago, and it's not very successful. Whereas in other other branches of motorsport, Aston has been very successful. So, you know, when you think of Aston than an F1 before 2021 what do, what do you think of?
2: Well there's only really one uh, period to think about and, and really it's the it's the Aston Martin DBR4 um, which Aston Martin started working on in 1957 and had they continued that was David Brown under David Brown's stewardship had they continued with that um, it was actually quite a competent car if they had had it in 57, 58 I think it could have been Quite competitive, but they decided to focus on their sports car programme, the DBR1, which was very successful and did win Le Mans in the World Sports Car Championship in 1959. They deemed that more relevant to, uh, to Aston Martin at the time and they had history in sports car endurance racing going back to, well, all the way through the 50s and, and before the war. And by the time they'd gone round to running the DBR4 in 1959, it was already kind of being made obsolete by Cooper with the rear engine revolution. Roy Salvadori actually did finish second at the Silverstone International Trophy, a non championship race on the car's debut, which did sort of get everyone excited. Uh, and that, But that really was as good as it got. And then uh, they stumbled on doing a handful of races uh, into 1960, but they never really, you know, by then even Ferrari was realising that the engine needs to be behind the driver Uh, and Aston Martin sort of stopped its motorsport
1: activity from 1960 really for for a brief while. 2021, it's all go again in Formula 1 for Aston Martin after that very, very uh, long gap between entries. Um, So Luke, I mean, you you attended the the virtual launch of the team's car it was pretty it's pretty glitzy it's fair to say had some had some big names i was quite surprised when tom brady turned up at one point and i just won a super bowl but i was didn't really get the the link to aston martin daniel craig as well that bit more obvious james bond 007 asked him so um first of all can you tell me why uh, tom brady was at the launch and then yeah just just how was that event and, and the team showing off its uh, its new look
3: I was equally as confused when Tom Brady turned up because the last time I saw him, he was, I believe, actually throwing the Super Bowl, I think, across a boat as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were celebrating uh, the Super Bowl victory. Obviously, the the seventh that he won and just, yeah, the greatest... NFL player of all time, turning up an F1 team launch is very, very random. But he is, in fact, an Aston Martin ambassador and has been since 2017, which was why he was uh, part of the launch and gave a, a very warm message to, to Lawrence Stroll and to the team ahead of the new season. And uh, I think that really did sort of set the for tone for the whole launch. It was filled with these sort of star names and... I sort of people coming in from outside of the F1 world, which is very strange actually, because as an F1 community, we're quite insular. We don't really tend to get people from the outside coming to these launches. It's all about, oh, let's talk to the technical director and to the team principal and the drivers. And while we got all of that. We also got star power with Tom Brady, Daniel Craig, as you say, obviously James Bond himself. Uh, it was MC by Gemma Arston, who was the Bond girl in Quantum of Solace. And it was it was just a really cool event, I thought. And I thought think that at a time when particularly in in the pandemic and when everything is done basically via zoom now the f1 team launches are so vanilla like a lot of them tend to just roll out the car in the pit lane and head up to start a pre-season testing or they might just release a few images online and do some media sessions aston went big they went really really big for their big comeback and i think that was a huge success i think it's the one launch that out of uh this season we will all be talking about and all remember and yeah i thought it was a really sort of slick operation so as first impressions go i think it was brilliant um i and i wrote this in the feature that's a far cry from i think back to the the force india days when it'd be i think 2016 or 17 and they would unveil this new car in the pit lane literally 15 minutes before the start of testing and then the first day would go to nikita Mazapan, who was then their development driver and obviously paying a, a butt ton of money basically to be the first man out in that car and now it's it's a far cry from that it's amazing to see how far the team has come
2: it's it's funny isn't it um back in the sort of late 90s maybe slightly into the early noughties you know f1 team launches were getting more and more ridiculous like the with the Rasmataz and the spice girls being at the mclaren one and obviously if you're it's coming from the other point of view as a, as a motorsport journalist then you're like this is just all a bit over the top and ridiculous like, i hope you've actually spent some money making the car go fast uh, but now we've got to the point where we're kind of so used to, As I completely agree with what Luke's saying, a kind of vanilla, half-baked, actually we can't even be bothered to show you most of the car type stuff. It's hard to get excited about launch season. So fair play for, to, to Aston Martin for actually, you know, bothering to put on such a such an effort for us. Uh, it,
1: was, it was a highlight of launch season, I think it's fair to say. Alfonso Celis Jr., is, is that? Didn't he get oh, a run out yeah. in, in the Force India? Yeah. Was that, I, he, I don't know if that was in-season or what.
3: I think that was, it was either pre-season or in-season. But I remember we, we sat down with him to talk about his day and he was really upbeat and he said, I quote, I have the potential to go fast in some corners. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> fair enough,
1: fair enough. There's, there's, a, there's a random blast of the past. Um, but look, what was the team saying about what the aston martin formula one team is now because it was very very interesting when the rebrand was was announced in early 2020 it was sort of flagged up as a oh now we're a works operation and it's sort of like "Mm, we're not it's not quite like that it's like yeah it is a manufacturer backed team but it's very different to say what mercedes does what ferrari does i mean the, the 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 closest link is it's more sort of what red bull are doing in terms of they are a effective and effectively a works squad but it's more sort of like the 90s operations you think like benetton and you know the linking up with the engine manufacturers there it's more like those sort of works operations but what was the, how is the team what is the team calling itself
3: the the works return of aston martin to f1 after 61 years away which is uh it's a it's a funny one isn't it because really it's it's Really, it's a a title sponsor, but it's a title sponsor and a brand that is also owned by the same person who owns the team. So it's really actually quite difficult to define. I know some of the some of the other teams on the grid are very adamant in that. Well, it's not a works team, clearly. Um, And even I mean, you think about what Alfa Romeo has, for example, that I mean, Alfa Romeo is the title sponsor, really, of what is effectively Sauber um but they are they're kind of two separate entities whereas with this it's it's the lines are very blurred so it's it's yeah it's a a tricky one to really define but I think they're and the the way that I I was sort of wording it in the feature and everything like that is the first car that will be entered as an Aston Martin 2 F1 since since uh, the 60s I mean that's that's sort of the, uh, the word around I guess but it's um yeah I think they're just they were just really excited about just bringing back this brand. And I think that maybe if you're Red Bull, you might quietly say, well, we've been carrying the Aston Martin name for a long time. And I know they were uh, very insistent that they be called Aston Martin Red Bull Racing uh, for a certain period of time. But it's, uh, no, I mean, this is this is proper. I mean, this isn't really just a, a title sponsorship or a sticker on a car or anything like that. It's, um, but it is a tricky one to define. I don't know what Kev, Kev would sort of rule on that.
2: Well, we we had that debate, didn't we, about what do we put in as their stats for the season preview? Do we do the... Because up to now, we've been doing the, the, the sort of the Jordan-Midland-Spiker-Force-India-Racing-Points uh, sequence, but... Um, um so we had a bit of a debate as to what I mean you can argue it either way obviously the team itself is more like that you know it's clearly there that the lineage goes back to Jordan in 1991 but we've got precedent with Mercedes you know, the Mercedes team that came in in 2010 is not the same Mercedes as was there in 1954 and 55 which we do include the stats for so we thought well that's a bit more consistent and like you say Luke, i feel it feels like more than just a branding exercise it's somewhere it's a halfway house isn't it and the fact for me the fact that lawrence stroll owns you know he, he, that consortium has a share in both like there is a you know david brown went racing with a racing team because yeah that that was the part of the entity that he had that he wanted to go racing with and he had the road car business so yeah it's not a full-on works mercedes Ferrari effort i wouldn't call it a factory effort um probably but I'm happy to call it Aston Martin if that makes sense. And also, from F1's point of view, let's face it, Racing Point was a rubbish name. So oh, having yeah. <laughs> Aston Martin on the entry list is 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 much better, isn't it? Looks much much better on the page
1: let's come on to another thing that can often offend people usually pointlessly don't know why people make fuss out of anything really what do we think of the lovely livery and obviously I've, I've nailed my colours to the mast there um, it's British Racing Green back in Formula 1 as you say in your feature Luke first time uh, in a good few years now since the was it the Caterham squad back at the you know the uh, the turn of the last decade sort of brought that back um, to the back of the grid wasn't very successful with it but um, yeah it was it was interesting because you know they, they said that they've spent over a year getting the colour scheme to work and I presume that that refers to the actual shade of green, but there were there were discussions, you know, about exactly how it was going to look for for right up it seemed until sort of everything was revealed. Because we know that BWT, there were suggestions that it was it was going to go to Williams or Haas potentially because it wasn't going to be the title sponsor of the Aston Martin squad. It remains on the cast. There is a little bit of pink there. It's not quite the same extent, obviously, when the team was the title sponsor last year. But see, so yeah, look, what do you think of the work that Aston's done on its uh, on its livery?
3: I think it's all been worthwhile, I think it's turned out really well and I think as I said on quite a few podcasts through launch season, it's nice now that every team does have a really strong identity, so you've got Alpine have got that lovely metallic blue, McLaren obviously have their Papaya, Ferrari have their red Mercedes have those black cars and Aston Martin I think particularly taken over from Racing Point which was the the pink team you would I I met sort of people who didn't really watch F1 ever but they'd be like oh I cheered on the pink cars because they stand out I think to now get such a strong identity again with that British racing green I think is so so cool and I think they've done an excellent job with it I think it's uh, yeah far cry from the sort of case from Team Lotus days when they uh, were were trying to park back to to Jim Clark Clark's time and it just didn't didn't really work in the same kind of way I think this is uh, this looks great Great, I think that all of the sort of images and shots they've released have been cool. Um, The creative um, manager at Aston, he spoke uh, about the sort of the need to get a car that not only looks good on TV and in pictures, but also on track and in the flesh. And I think they've achieved that. I think all the sort of the images coming out have been so so far so good uh, I look forward to a time when we, we can be at a racetrack and to, to see it in the flesh I think that would be really really nice but uh, no f- nice job very well done and I think that any fears that the, the pink of BWT was going to dominate and turn it into a bit of a watermelon looking car were thankfully unfounded it uh, turned out quite subtly in the end
1: it certainly has I did note on Twitter that someone had compared it to a, a particular brand of hairspray in a particular bottle that I actually own which I know will, uh, will ah. amuse Kev no doubt <laughs> But anyway, Kev. I mean, you're the sort of person I can imagine just get. You know, you must yearn for British Racing Green to be back in Formula One. What what do you think of it?
2: Um, I mean, I do. I I think it's good because it's different. Um, I mean, obviously, we're a long way away from when the the national colours were in the. uh, uh, You know, we're we're on each team, uh, which is probably a good thing, really, to be honest. But um, but yeah, I think uh, I I think it's it's something different. I quite like the pink because that was different, and the green the green's different. Um, I think. But it's going to look more attractive. It's going quickly, isn't it? I think that's the you know that's always the thing with the uh, with cars uh, that you, you uh, and racing cars in particular. They always look
1: more gorgeous if uh, if they're competitive and quick. It certainly does. Um, but Luke, I just wanted to, to think again about you know the work we said that went into into the livery and all the time and effort. I mean, do you think that's an example of just what? The, the rebranded team can now do with, with its fresh investment it can afford to sort of push the boat in certain areas where it couldn't before or maybe is it just the fact that it's the Lawrence Stroll consortium I mean he made all his money in fashion you know he's, he's clearly you know looking good he's obviously obviously a part of that so you know wh- where do we see sort of that influence coming from?
3: I think it's both sides of that. I think that Lawrence Stroll, he doesn't do anything to to finish second. He does it to win. He does it to be the best. And I think we've seen that not only through the very, very rigorous uh, design process for the livery. And I mean, even, I mean, I remember last year, for example, I I was told that the... uh, Initial designs apparently had been rejected because there wasn't enough BWT pink on it. And I slipped it into a story. So that's quite an interesting detail. And Aston were really touchy about that. They got in touch and they were like, ooh what's like, how, have you found that out? And I was just like, it's just like, it's very interesting. But that kind of shows the, the length of the de- detail they go to. Um... But, I mean, with the sponsors they've got on board as well, I mean, the, these are big co- big uh, companies. You look up Cognizant, their new title sponsor. so Fortune 500 company, which you don't see many of those getting a title sponsorship in F1. So he's uh, he's very serious about what he does. So I think that's uh, it's a sign of that. Um, and, yeah, it is just that they're a world away from where this team was. I mean, you think sort of three years ago, um, just before that week at Spar, where the team was collapsing and... Sergio Perez had to basically push through the administration process so that this consortium could come in and rescue it and Racing Point was uh, born out of the ashes of Force India. It's come so far it has now I think Sebastian Vettel worded it as the oxygen to breathe and Laurence Stroll made very clear he said that we, we want to punch harder we want to be up there fighting with the, the very top teams and that's now what they can do they're no longer sort of thinking like okay well we're going to design a car that's it there's going to be hardly any development through the season now they can put through a proper process proper process we saw a bit of that i think in in 2020 when obviously they could roll the dice with the the pink mercedes rp20 design and basically gamble a whole year on this concept may work or it may backfire but we're going to go for it only as they sort of grow more and more into the aston martin uh, model i think that's only going to continue and and further I'll,
2: I'll tell you what it reminds me of it reminds me of matterships in the early days of red bull and you could argue that they're in a better starting point because obviously when when red bull bought jaguar they were you know in a really bad place needed a lot of rebuilding reorganizing they had some good people but they had to bring up bring some people in some people left a lot of reorganizing it took them a long time to to really get going um, but obviously now we can we consider them a manufacturer team even though they're not just because they've got that you know they've got the the, the financial and and design uh facilities clout to do it and we've long said, you know, it's almost become a cliche in the F1 paddock, hasn't it, that that, that, that Force India Racing Point punches above its weight. It's the best pound for pound team on the grid. Well, now they can have more pounds. So, uh, so let's, let's see what they can do. Like, I'm quite, I'm quite excited about the long, you know, 2021, we'll get onto what we think they're going to achieve in a minute. Cause I know we don't entirely agree on that, but, um, yeah, I think it will be good cause they've got a good base car. But I think what's really exciting is where they'll be in three or five years time, because I think you're right. I think Lawrence Stroll is not someone that's going to be messing about in the same way that Matichich just got on with it and hired the right people. Um, so yeah, I, I think it could be. I think it could, could be one of those teams that actually does have good potential to to get to the front, especially with the new rules that are coming in.
1: Indeed, and Luke, what was the team saying about its long term goals at the team launch? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't it say it was it's targeting titles in sort of five years time, or at least being in the hunt?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Because again, Lawrence Stroll doesn't want to finish second; he's in this to win. I mean, he was even quoted. Uh, recently, saying that he believes uh, Lance Stroll has the potential to be a world champion. Clearly, that's what he sees as uh, as being the, this long term vision for the for the operation. So, but they are also very mindful of the time that it takes. I mean, you look at Mercedes, they since returning in 2010 they really took time to sort of build things up and it wasn't really till 2014 they got going and um, Sebastian Vettel said uh, a few days ago that it wasn't probably actually until maybe two years after that that you could say they actually had the best car as well so they it did take time to build up and that's really what they're thinking Otmar uh, Safnau the team principal he said that really it's sort of a three to five year time scale that they're looking at in terms of uh, being able to fight at the very very front of the grid and, and fight with the top teams the budget cap ultimately that does play to their strengths so they can sort sort of focus on the uh, facilities and um, sort of investing. Obviously, the building a, a new factory so they can get everything under one roof at Silverstone. And uh, yeah, I think it is sort of more of a... It's more long-term vision. They're not thinking this year they're going to go in and Aston Martin's going to win a race straight away. I think even if they are sort of heady off the success of last year when they won the Secure Grand Prix and had a very good season. I think they know because that midfield is so competitive. It's not a given that's going to be the same again this year, Uh, nor is it a given that they're going to be able to cut the gap to Mercedes and Red Bull. They know it will take time, Uh, but the foundations and the vision is there uh, to make it happen
1: certainly is well let's talk about the driver lineup because as we said uh, Sebastian Vettel coming in to replace Sergio Perez who as you said Luke uh, effectively saved the team with his actions in the summer of 2018 um, was given a new three-year contract by the squad um, ahead of the 2020 season but he's out obviously he's at Red Bull now he's landed very much on his feet although interesting to see how he gets on against Max Verstappen and that's rather a poison chalice but obviously we 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 will wait to see what he can do when it comes to uh, racing at the front with Red Bull Aston acting pretty swiftly acting pretty uh, pretty ruthlessly it obviously wanted a four-time world champion in its car and there was one available when Ferrari opted to drop uh, Sebastian Vettel so Kev I mean what do you what do you think about that change how, how good can Vettel be this year have Aston made an upgrade or have they just gone you know for status rather than you know future potential
2: I think that's kind of in Vettel's hands isn't it I mean we know he's a better and driver than he was in in 2020 I mean that was you know horrendous um I think they I think it's probably a, the right signing in the sense that it does show their ambition and he will and the team I think made this point at the launch yeah, he brings a lot of experience and knowledge that will be useful to them you know he's used used to running at the front of races fighting for championships fighting for race wins and that that in itself will be useful I think where they've let themselves down a little bit in that you'd want that sort of experienced older hand alongside are kind of rising. Like if you had Vettel alongside a George Russell type, then you'd be thinking this this is looking quite quite tasty. Assuming that Vettel does get his mojo back, which the more I think about it, the more I'm leaning towards actually maybe he will this year. Um, let's hope so. But uh, and this is the main, this is the big difference between Stroll and Matashitz. Matashitz started a, a, a young pr, young driver program to find the very best drivers out there to make sure that his team had them. And and Lawrence Stroll is still hanging on to this idea that that Lance is a, a future world champion, and you know don't get me wrong, Lance Stroll is a, a long way away from being the, the worst worst driver F one has ever seen or anything like that. You know he's won championships on the way up. He's a competent racing driver, but he's been in F one long enough now. We we know that he's not the, the next second coming. He's never going to be beating the clerks, Verstappen's, George Russells in equal kit. So I think. This will be a, quite a big test for him this year. He's got to step up against Vettel and really show that he's making progress. Otherwise, I mean, if Lawrence is as ruthless as we're saying he is, there will come a point where if the team is progressing, he's going to have to go, I can't afford to be wasting one of the seats and then he have to replace his own son, uh, which obviously is, I imagine, a pretty awkward conversation on the, I was going to say on the drive home, on the flight home, obviously. Um, but on the yeah, private so I think, jet flight home. The private jet fly him. So yeah, the, that, the the reason that I don't think that they will finish... because they should have finished third in the constructors' championship, obviously in twenty twenty, if he hadn't been for their their points penalty. Uh, and the reason I don't think they'll they'll finish there is I, I don't think the driver lineup is 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 strong enough to see off all three of the teams that are going to be coming after them this year.
1: Well, Leek, what was uh, what was Vettel saying at the launch about you know how he's feeling at his new home and, and did he also not have a, a little dig at his uh, his former home at Ferrari?
3: He did, yeah. I mean, and he's not Vettel's never been one to sling mud or anything like that but I think you could you got the impression that he's really enjoying being with such a sort of raw racing team and a, a British racing team Again, we know that Seb is a big fan of like British comedies and a big Monty Python fan and things like that so I think sort of the, the British sort of stiff upper lip and good working culture I think he's he's fitting in quite nicely with that and all of the noises from the team as well they said they've been really impressed by how he's gelling with everyone he's working with but uh, yeah he was sort of talking about a uh, working with the team. And he said, it's not about the, the fancy chairs or the fancy offices. It's just about sort of getting on with, with the job at hand and getting the points and delivering on track. And I think that it's, uh, it's quite interesting to hear that. Um, also, any sort of uh, rumours of uh, misgivings with Ferrari that might have prompted Vettel to sell a lot of his uh, car collection, which is almost exclusively Ferraris. Uh, he put that to bed and he was like, it simply is that I just don't have time to drive them. And I think that the, um, the uh, sheets and documents that went along with the, the sale of those cars I think one of them he'd driven something like 20 kilometers in the past three years so it kind of all adds up really um, but yeah he was he was in a really good mood like we had a good sort of half hour with and he was in a very he's always eloquent he's always very good and very honest with with how he talks but I think last year you could tell he was getting a bit just like fuck. Okay, I'm tired of talking about how rubbish I've been and how great Leclerc is um, whereas this year yeah there was something new something fresh to uh, look forward to uh, sort of a similar vibe I guess to 2015 when he joined Ferrari and was sort of like okay this is my home now this is something i can really turn around so i think he's gonna really relish that challenge and i think that he's he's just very excited to get up to speed and get into something very new and again this is the first time he's joining a team where it isn't from day one okay you're going for wins you're going for championships it's about some building something more long term and he was asked like they said a a three to five year time span do you think you're going to be around for that to fight for these championships and he said well ultimately you can never sort of see what's going to happen but he said I'm only 33 I feel I've got the time left in me I feel I've got another championship in me and it's all about getting the car really and I think that yeah he's going to put that four-time champion knowledge to the best use possible and uh, try and help Aston Martin deliver on that in the coming years.
1: Indeed. Well, let's move on and predict where we think the team might end up at the end of the season. We saw sort of, we did we did cover this a little bit in another podcast. Um, so I I am going to go on record and say I I think Aston will finish will finish third this year, and I say that purely because of the the pace of the car last year. It was the third fastest car, and it should have finished third in the in the constructors' championship. The reason why it didn't is because it lost. Fifteen points to the uh, to you know the the uh, the penalty in terms of the, the the Ferrari over its its design origins, but actually its drivers really really let it down in the early stages. Sergio Perez in the season opener, speeding in the pit lane when he effectively could have finished uh, finished uh, second or third. Points just gone missing. Uh, the same the same in uh, in in the other early races. Then obviously you know there was the the fact that he that he missed uh, two races with COVID. Of course you know nobody's fault that they get COVID, but. It's just, it's just a case of things just didn't quite work out when third was there for the taking. And then when you f- factor in Ferrari surely has got to be better this year, it probably won't be as good as it was in 2019. So therefore it's in the mix for third and it's taking points off other teams and presumably isn't quite as good as the racing point. I mean, I appreciate these are bold predictions. The flip side to all of that is I think what Kev's going to come ste- steaming in with is the quality of the driver lineup. And, you know, Sebastian Vettel, for all the amazing things he did at Red Bull recent years in the Ferrari has made some terrible errors usually in battle when the pressure is on and in that crowded midfield that pressure is not going to decrease it's going to be if anything potentially you know more on the line okay no might not be for 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 wins and titles but there's certainly going to be a lot of a lot of pressure on him so you know I I appreciate that there is another side to this Um, Kev we'll come to you things I know you I already know you disagree with me where do you think Aston will finish in the Constructors Championship this year?
2: I'm going to go fourth uh, because I agree with you. I, I agree with all of that. Um, but I just think that a combination of the the driver, because I think the Ferrari driver lineup is potentially the best one on the grid. It does obviously depend on how science beds in there. Um, but the other thing is that Ferrari will make, I think, probably the biggest gain of that midfield group because they know that their numbers were just way off, right? From the moment they got to testing last year, they knew they were in trouble. You know, they obviously that the power cut, and they also they they built their whole aero package around having this incredibly bombastic engine. They weren't allowed to have anymore, so they've just by by changing the aero mapping and working that out, and then improving the engine. I I think of the midfield. Just put class C to one side. I think in the midfield Ferrari will make the biggest gain. That will get them enough in the ballpark that Leclerc and Science will score enough points between them to to seal off a Vettel stroll combination. Uh, but I suspect that the Aston Martin will be probably a little bit too good for McLaren and Alpine. Uh but I mean, it's gonna be really close. Like each of those teams has got you know, has got a yeah, you know, real sort of gold star by, you know, Alpine have got Fernando Alonso for goodness sake. So yeah, it should be I think it's gonna be really exciting
1: to watch that midfield battle. But fourth is my final answer. Good, good. Well, yeah, I think you're right. It will be a a great battle to keep an eye on. Um, and indeed, obviously, the the flip side to the whole point about the drive lineup, I may add another one in for for my case for third place is the fact that Vettel is now in a new home, where he feels refreshed, revitalised. You know, we know he loves having the full support of the team. Didn't get that at Ferrari towards the end with Charles Leclerc coming coming in. So you know, maybe that makes a difference. Who knows?
2: If Vettel delivers and if Stroll can improve, like that's like one of those might happen. Uh, both of them he's still going to suddenly be able to go toe to to with Ricciardo and Lando Norris and Fernando Alonso Leclerc so, no he's not I'm
1: sorry he isn't is he um, I, I agree with that but Luke where do you think uh, Aston are going to be at the end of the year
3: fourth is likely to be where they end up because again I just think that Ferrari are going to make such a big step this year and can't possibly be as bad as they were last season I think that that is going to be enough to put them to the front of the midfield so I think that plus the stronger driver lineup I think that's gonna that's gonna put them in really good stead I think that yeah I think they. Aston Martin will probably have a bit too much for McLaren I think the fact that they've also been able to benefit from the loophole where they get the, the the free upgrade on the Mercedes rear end as well basically in addition to their token spend I think that's uh that's that's a benefit obviously um so yeah I think that's gonna probably put them ahead of the other midfielders but I think the Ferrari I just yeah I can't see them not making such a big step so yeah I'm gonna go fourth but I reckon they will be on the podium a few times
1: Okay, okay. Well, I shall, you know, I shall buy you some some drinks uh, both of you if they uh, if they don't finish third. I mean, you're assuming we're allowed to do such if, things. If we're allowed to buy drinks,
2: if we're allowed to buy drinks, I'm happy <laughs> to buy all the drinks. I don't care about the bet. Let's just go out and have some drinks. <laughs> Good. We're going to hold
1: you to that. But let's come on and talk about the the car itself, uh, Luke. What was the team saying at the launch? Obviously, very limited in terms of uh, what the what what they can change because of the restrictions, uh, because of the uh, you know the carryover requirements for this year. So, I mean, the, 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 the m- most of the car essentially is what it had last year. So, is it fair to call this now green Mercedes?
3: Uh, well, I think they they obviously will not want to have it known as that. It's an Aston Martin, after all. But no, I think they the argument that Andrew Green, the technical director, made was that the decision to go with that Mercedes concept was made in early 2020 and went out, well, obviously far before then, but then debuted on track in early 2020. And they're now so far removed from that that even throughout last season, the updates and stuff that they were bringing, they were sort of moving more and more gradually away from that original co- original concept so i think that yeah they would argue that it's not a mercedes it's not a green mercedes they're sort of quite far removed now from the 2019 title winner with, with what they've done um he wouldn't say where they've spent their tokens but uh, they've they're the only i think going to be the only team this year with a new chassis so that's where that token spend has gone and uh yeah i think that really they're just they're they're again quite I think confident and happy with what they've done I think they feel that it's a good evolution on last year I think uh Sebastian Vettel obviously the sort of idea around him that he's needed a stable rear end on his car the team said that they're happy to accommodate that but then Vettel came back and said that that idea has got out of hand he said that I've had cars in the past that have had a, a loose rear end and I've dealt with it and I've won in it so it's going to be interesting how he gets on with that but yeah I think they're sort of uh, there, there's a quiet confidence thing coming out of the team, a bit like Mercedes when they unveiled their car. I think it's it's sounding quite good.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to, uh, I don't have the technical uh, knowledge to say how much of it's uh, Mercedes and how much of it's moved away from that. But I did speak to Mark Williams, who does have the technical knowledge, X McLaren and Lola design. And he said that during last year, he was impressed that the team could bring updates That made the car better. So you can you could copy something, but if you don't understand what you're doing, then you're like that would be it. You're like, and you'll just fall away down the grid as you as you kind of lose your way with it. So they've not they've not done that. They obviously understand what they're doing, and obviously the longer it goes on with them bringing their own bits on, which aren't coming from the Mercedes factory, you know, they're doing their own bits. yeah, the the further away from that philosophy you get, and you kind of got you got your, go down your own path. So I think last year there were obviously fair question marks over the car, but I think as time goes by, yeah, we've got a, a rules change happening. You know, it is. I think we can
1: we we can kind of put that one to bed now and say, yeah, it, it is that team's car now. There's another side in terms of Aston's motorsport story that we're going to discuss on this podcast, because although it's coming back to Formula One, uh, it's sort of rather abruptly ending its uh, its its campaign in the World Endurance Championship, but it's not defending what it won in 2020. So Kev, can you just explain uh, what the reason for that is?
2: Well, I should probably have revealed this earlier, but I, you know, I grew up as a as an Aston Martin fan. I, one of the reasons I got into motorsport was because my dad used to take me to Aston Martin owners club events, at Silverstone and the like. I hasten to add, we never went in an Aston Martin; we just went to look at them uh, and watch them. Um, and but for me, they've always been a sports car, GT, endurance racing, Mark. You know, that happens to be what I like. I like Le Mans and all all that, You know, those sorts of races. So I was a bit. Uh, my initial feeling was of disappointment when that program came to an end and they're going to do an F1 and Aston Martin doesn't do F1 what's going on um, but um, but actually you look at that ProDrive program that started in 2005 it has been incredibly successful it's arguably Aston's most successful period in motorsport ever even taking into account the, the 1950s so yeah, it, yeah, it's been going a long time it's a longer program than many manufacturers manage they've said that they want to focus on the customer program they're building lots of GT3 and GT4 cars um, they want to focus on the blue ribbon events because two of the things they haven't managed to win uh, the Spa 24 Hours and Nürburgring 24 Hours uh, which are the ones that the German manufacturers in particular throw everything at um, and if you look at the way Audi and Mercedes go around their GT racing, you know they have sort of factory-affiliated teams uh, with with factory drivers placed at them, but it's not a full-on works entry normally. Um, although, obviously, I mean that's a grey area, isn't it, as to how much is a, how much a car is factory-supported or factory-run. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I'm disappointed, but I think actually it makes it makes quite a lot of, quite a lot of sense um, that they, that the program has come to its its natural conclusion
3: a disappointment I had as well, was that the uh, Aston Martin Valkyrie, which obviously they've been working on with Red Bull. And the idea obviously was to take that to Le Mans. I remember I was at Le Mans a couple of years back when they made this big announcement and they said, yeah, we're going to go back to the premier class we want Aston Martin fighting for the top honors at the, the biggest sports car race in the world. And um, obviously after the stroll consortium took things over, uh, the plug was pulled on that completely and that, that's all gone. And it's just a really disappointing because similar to, as we spoke about on the Ferrari podcast, Last week, it's lovely seeing these big brands at the very top table of sports car racing uh, fighting for for uh, overall victory at Le Mans again. And uh, yeah, I was just excited to see Aston Martin doing that. But um, yeah, it is a shame because again, I think particularly in the the, the GTE Pro class, I mean, they've been such a, a mainstay through the years. And I think it's been a yeah a difficult period for that class. I think now going into a very tricky season uh, with only Porsche and Ferrari really signed up, um, but. Again, as as you say, Kevin, you get the reasons behind it. They're still committed to the customer racing, which is great as well. And uh, yeah, who knows? Hopefully in the future, after maybe after Lawrence has had his F1 career and says to his dad, fans oh, fancy going to Le Mans, that Lawrence might uh, rethink that.
2: Well, it, I mean, it is quite ironic, isn't it? Aston Martin, you know, you, they're kind of traditional rivals in the road car market, if you like. You'd probably say Porsche and Ferrari. Uh, and just as they decide to leave endurance racing completely, Paul and Ferrari both commit to top class <laughs> Le Mans campaign. So, yeah, it would be nice to think that let's say the F1 program is going nicely and, and they're fighting at the front for championships. That Lawrence says, ah, oh, yes, actually, let's like Aston Martin back to Le Mans in the top class. So,
1: yeah, we can we can but hope that would be that would be wonderful. Indeed well let's move on to the next element of this podcast which uh, as regular listeners uh, will probably know when we do these magazine accompaniment pieces uh, we uh, we like to pull out one of Kev's top 10 car lists that he enjoys doing some of them have already been published on autosport.com some of them in the magazine uh, and this week is no different although as you alluded to earlier Kev it is ever so slightly different for two reasons one we've only got five cars uh, also this is this is exclusively about the f1 machines produced by effectively team silverstone so what became what started life as jordan back in the early 90s and has progressed through being known as midland spiker force india now obviously racing point and of course aston martin so let's uh, let's kick things off at number five we've got the jordan 197 from 1997 um why is that in fifth place
2: partly because Gary Anderson who designed it uh, reckons that it's probably the best Jordan that didn't win a Grand Prix I think that's probably fair comment Um, you had Giancarlo Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher who were very inexperienced at the time and managed to I think managed to drive into each other at least was at least once or twice I think they, they did have a few calamities and Fisichella was unfortunate at the German Grand Prix to come up against Gerhard Berger on. I would suggest probably his greatest day, where he was just not going to get beaten at Hockenheim. Otherwise, he would you know might might have won. So uh, that was one reason. And the other is I just think it looks inc- it's just cool. I think those uh, those cars before they went for, to the. Uh, Narrow, horrible, groove tyre thing, which I've criticised. I think in pretty much every single one of these podcasts, and I don't make no apologies for that. They were terrible. But before that, the the wide, big, slicked cars of of nineteen ninety seven, I think were were cool. And I think that the one the one nine seven was was arguably the best looking one. Probably that and the McLaren, I guess.
1: Well, and number four, we've got the Jordan one nine one. Fourth place, arguably. Arguably the most famous Jordan, I know a certain uh, motorsport publication that will be absolutely livid that you've only got it fourth, Kev. So, um, so yeah, but it, it's not just about looks, this list. So I presume that's why it's uh, it's down in fourth place, because, you know, success has to be factored in as well.
2: Yeah, I really wanted um, uh, to, to put it higher, really. It was quite difficult to place because it's such an iconic shape and livery. And, and also, what a way to come into Formula One, Um you know, they basically <laughs> they were they had to pre qualify the first half of the season, but the car was so good it was a consistent point scorer really. And that was with Andrea De Cesaris and Bertrand Gasher, who were I mean, De Cesaris could be fast but was usually fast immediately before hitting something. Uh he was actually quite controlled in nineteen ninety one. Uh, but the car was actually quite a long way off off the pace of the McLaren and Williams. It wasn't really as close as some of the other cars that were up for consideration. Yeah, and ultimately it didn't it didn't win a race. It perhaps should have won the Belgian Grand Prix. So it's difficult to place really once for its results fourth is a bit generous but for the impact of a new car from a new team coming into F1 perhaps fourth place is a bit harsh so on average I think it's probably in
1: the right place Fair enough well at number three you've got the Racing Point RP20 of course very familiar because it's uh, the last last year's car Um, a race winner as we said, the Secure Grand Prix, Sergio Perez got it uh, got it to the top there. Did need quite a lot of help in terms of uh, the luck and the way the way that race unfolded, but nevertheless, a very very fine victory. Uh, as I said, also the third fastest car of last year, sort of you know bigger results potentially squandered, but the team really really came on strong uh, later on in the year. So why is that at number three?
2: Well, partly because, as you say, it is a is a race winner. You know that team hasn't been able to to go for wins very often, and yes. Things did go to their, you know, to play there that way. But remember, of course, in, in in the old days, the front runners would have broken down a lot more often, and that kind of third or fourth place type cars would have picked up race wins as they went through the season. It's just we don't, we don't normally see it. Fortunately, Mercedes dropped the ball in the pits twice last year, and we had two of the most popular results of the season. Obviously, Perez winning uh, for Racing Point and Pierre Gasly winning for for Aftori at Monza. So you know, people people like those kind of random wins. But but also remember where Racing Point were in 2019 in terms of pace, you know they, they, they were kind of towards the back end of the midfield and it was only their slick operation and a, another sort of excellent Perez effort that kind of got them into that fight and the RP20 has really launched them up the grid in terms of pace to the point where perhaps arguably they didn't achieve the place they should have done the championship because of all the, the things that we've that we've talked about, very few of which are to do with the car itself. so I thought it, I thought it was a pretty solid third place in the end
1: indeed indeed well we come on to our our usual way of explaining number one and two at the same time so that you know kevin you can explain why you've got them in that particular order at number one it's the jordan 199 from 1999 and at number two it's the jordan 198 from the year before 1998 so why have you got them in that particular order
2: I mean they well they had they had to be number one and two really because uh they're both incredibly significant. Obviously the one nine eight was the breakthrough car for Eddie Jordan's team, you know, Damon Hill winning at the at the Belgian Grand Prix in nineteen ninety eight, that crazy wet race in the wet. Um and the but the one nine nine gets it because that's the only car from that team so far that's that you could call a championship contender. Um, okay, 1999 was a strange season, but the, but Heinz-Harald Frenz I think was on on top form. The car was really good. Obviously, Mark Schumacher broke his leg at Ferrari. McLaren had all sorts of calamities. I mean, Mika Salo, uh, Mika obviously handed the race win to Eddie Irvine, and Eddie Irvine almost won the world championship. So there was there was a lot going on that season. But the yeah, 199 uh, is the only the only car from this team that's been a, a championship, a genuine championship contender. Frenz won a couple of races uh and also uh, going back to the x factor thing i think for for the grooved groove tire uh, ear it was it was quite a cool looking car as well i 've got um, just looking at pictures of the one nine eight and the one nine nine now from the magazine and I think the one nine nine looks much sleeker and cooler than the than the predecessor so uh, that 's why it got the the number one just as an interesting aside the following year 's car the two thousand e j ten was closer to the pace than any car that team has ever produced, which amazed me when I came across it um, but of course they couldn 't finish any races so it was way down in the championship nowhere near near. but that was actually in terms of pace that was the quickest so the, the 199 was the best combination of pace and reliability I think
1: so would you have the 2000 car at 6 then on your list?
2: Well I really wanted to put one of the Force Indias in because I felt a bit I felt I yeah Force India did a lot of there were a lot of good efforts with that, those cars and the in 2009 they were the, on across the season it was the slowest car in the field in the season that's the, the closest in F1 history and was good enough for Fisichella to almost win the Belgian Grand Prix um so that car was in it and there were a, um a couple of the Perez Hulkenberg years where they were where they were very strong as well but in the end, I sort of had to go. Well, none of these, none of those cars really were genuine front runners, uh, certainly not consistently. Uh, whereas all of these cars, uh, cars are, except for the one nine one, which was of course, uh, uh, yeah, the, the first first car for for the team in F one. So, yeah, but I can see uh, Luke is looking quizzical or, or thoughtful. What would you have, What would you have put in there, uh, Luke, that I've missed?
3: Yeah, when you say about the Force India, because they did, they had a run of years where they were just building like a, a decent midfield car. And then the one I would throw in there is the 2017. 2017- VJM 10 car, because although it wasn't a front runner, it didn't go and fight for race victories or anything like that. Really, it I mean, sorry, this team never could, like it wasn't in, in, in that state able to, and that was a time when we very much had the big three teams very entrenched as Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull. And that year, I mean, they comfortably finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship. They are miles ahead of the rest of the midfield. Um, Perez and Ocon, I mean, Ocon in particular, I remember I think it was uh, consistency we called it at one point, because he was always bringing home these points on such a regular basis. Um, I think there's an argument that had it not been um, for a, a clash between Perez and Ocon in Baku, I think they were probably further up the order and more in line uh, to benefit from the, the chaos that allowed Daniel Ricardo to win that race from 10th on the grid. So I think that, yeah, I think that, that was probably the best forcing India season, I would say, and I would, I would maybe argue that that as a car was probably more successful than dare I say the 191? Because, I mean, like in terms of and looking at these, I mean, Jordan built some beautiful, beautiful cars. Um, but I just think, yeah, that was a real a solid, solid midfielder. But I guess that it's not one that's going to really live long in the memory because you don't sort of think, oh, that car finished fourth in the championship that year. You think about it's, I guess, it's sort of wider impact and it didn't really have that. But I think, yeah, in terms of sort of raw performance and raw results, I would maybe put that in the top five.
2: Yeah, I will. I will happily concede that um, I've definitely leaned towards the X factor rating for those last <laughs> couple nice. of slots because I, I actually I think I started downloading some photos of of those cars and there I think there was a one of the one of the cars a couple of years beforehand and when I was looking at the pictures I just can't put one of those cars in here. It's just compared to the <laughs> one nine seven, and the one nine one. So perhaps on this particular list, I did lean slightly to, more towards the X factor than the straight uh the straight stats and uh and context that uh, i normally do so i think that's an entirely fair criticism
3: i would also point out the vgm 10 did not have a phallic nose either so
2: oh god yeah no that would that automatic ban then (laughs) (laughs) well that's our podcast for today before we go here's what you can see right now on autosport plus luke smith looks at how netflix built on a successful formula in drive to survive season three Stuart Codling from our sister-titled GP Racing writes about why Mercedes isn't worried about the camouflage gains. And in IMSA, after taking over Corvette Racing, 34-year-old Laura Wanchot-Klaus is leading General Motors through a transitional phase in sports car racing. She talks to our American motorway expert, David Moushane-Lopez. New subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST during checkout to save 50% off their first payment. Go to autosport.com forward slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page. Then use promo code PODCAST for that 50% discount. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back
0: soon.